Welcome to episode 163 of Texing, the first episode of Texing in the year 2012, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And if the links that Jason has emailed me is anything to go by, we're going to have one of the most depressing years in history. <laughs> <laughs> so you emailed me three stories, three stories to read for this show. And I have to say, they are depressing. <laughs> well, let's get to those in a minute. We don't have to jump into those right yet. But uh, first of all, I'll say it's good to have you back. Oh, thank you very kindly. Yeah, you know, um, um, we we didn't do a show last weekend because it was New Year's Eve, essentially. And you had a lot of stuff planned, and it was just going to be a little hard to uh, coordinate. Yeah. Plus, I don't think you even had a, a access to a decent um, internet connection, right? Yeah, I had that that MiFi thing, which is pretty good for work, but not so great for podcasts. Yeah, so I hate missing a show because what I end up having is like a buildup of things I want to talk about, and I end up losing track of everything that I wanted to say, and then right. I have too many stories to cover. It's, it's frustrating. So yeah. I have like two weeks of stuff I want to get in. Well, just before we get into the show and before we get into the doom and gloom stories that you've sent me. No, they're not all doom and gloom. Not all. Well, hold on a second. Let me read out the, the titles. The Decline and Fall of the American Empire. Story number one. The, du- the dumbest idea in the world, maximizing shareholder value, which is basically predicting the end of American capitalism. No. And then the, f- the, f- <laughs> the final story is 2011, the year secrecy jumped the shark, which is essentially predicting the end of civil liberty. No, well, it's not predicting anything. It's just detailing what happened. But let's get to that. You're, you're, you know, we're, we're jumping the gun here. We got, you know, got to ease into it. I guess I'm, I'm ribbing you, and I, I probably shouldn't be. Oh, I would get into that ribbing. You're just, uh, you're, you're, you're skipping the foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> what a bad way to start the year. <laughs> you're skipping the podcast foreplay. You got you to ease into things there. You can't just, like, you know, jump right into the meat of it. Come on. Well, talking of foreplay... We got some fantastic donations this week. Did we? Yeah, we did. I think, I guess because our, uh, our, our little kind of um, discussion about donations last week, about how, <laughs> how useless the donations had been for like the past few months, uh, certainly spurred some people to donate. So that's fantastic. So I have some donations to read out if you'd be up for it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so um, we have an executive producer of, of this week's show. Oh, wow. What does an executive redu- producer mean exactly? I forget. You have to give $50 or more. Oh, wow. Okay. An executive producer is just what it would mean in a Hollywood movie. That's awesome. Because if you were an executive producer, you actually get like a credit. Oh, you get a credit. I, you get a credit on the show notes page. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, okay. So go on. <laughs> okay. So uh, our first, we, we actually have two executive producers this show. Oh. So our first one is Dave Marshall. Um, Dave says, hi, chaps. Been listening since the mid 70s <laughs> oh. of the episodes. Love the show. Wanted to show some love. Um, have you guys ever considered taking listener questions like the Stack Overflow podcast did when it was good? Well, that would that would go on the assumption that we know anything. So I don't. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I think we should just say, look, just mail, email us in some questions. It doesn't matter what they are. Just just ask us anything, and we'll try and answer it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not I'm not claiming I'm an expert on anything. So you know, I'll just put that qualification out there. 
Book yeah, one. well, don't, don't expect a good answer, but do, do send the questions. Okay. He also says, if you published in advance who you're going to interview, you could take submissions for upcoming interviews as well. Keep up the good work. Dave Marshall. Thank you, Thanks, Dave. Dave. Yeah. yeah, awesome. So we also have uh, another executive producer for this week's show, Alex Gemmel. Alex! Why wow. the hell is Alex <laughs> donating when he's also a host of the show occasionally? So I don't know. But anyway. Are we supposed to be paying him? He's paying for the privilege of talking on Texan. <laughs> I think. Is he bribing us to get on again? I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Maybe it's just a guilt payment. He felt bad at he, how he ripped me one on a, on a comment on my uh, anti-SOPA post. Oh, that's what it must be. <laughs> he felt a little bad. <laughs> I don't know. All right, Alex, you've paid your dues. You, you don't need to feel bad about, ups, you know, being mean. All right. <laughs> All right. And, 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 oh, and um, any other donations? Yeah. There's um, a $30 shout out. Okay. Um, from Per Kristen Helland. Now, there's no, I don't have a note attached with this. If there is a note, uh, just, just send it in an email to us at um, podcast.textinglive.com and I'll read it out. But thanks a lot, uh, Per Kristen. Um, and I don't know if, if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, but anyway, thanks very much for that shout out. And if anyone else would like to donate to the fantastic texting, just go to textinglive.com forward slash donate. The fantastic texting. I like it. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, you know, if, even if you are sending doom and gloom emails, I'm very optimistic for the year 2012. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm optimistic about myself and what I can do. <laughs> and I am not, but not so much America. <laughs> I'm not so optimistic about uh, you know, politics and things like that. Let's put right. it that way, right? I mean, you know, it, they're not the same. I, I mean, I, I, things that I have control over, things that I think I can do and make happen, I, I feel very empowered. I feel like I can make a lot happen, and I'm, I'm excited about what I think this is going to happen this year. But, you know, that, what I think is going on in Washington. and Is it my imagination, or have you become, uh, over the last few years since we started the show, are you becoming more pro- progressively more interested in politics and um, what's happening in Washington? No, no. Um, I've always been um, interested in, in things like that. I, I, I should say not always, but I should say probably ever since I realized that that I was lied and that we were all lied into the Iraq War, despite right. the Iraq War. Ever since I realized how fooled I was by that, I've just started paying a lot closer attention to what's really happening, as opposed to like what you get from you know reading the front page news or seeing on headline news on CNN or something, you know? Right. So, but that, and that goes, so that goes back to probably 2000. I think I probably kind of started paying a little closer attention to being a little more critical and probably 2005 maybe. Hmm. So, um, so yeah. So I want to ask you a quick question. Um, uh, how, what, what is your, um, how do you prepare for the show in terms of, you know, managing notes and information and tracking things? Do you have a, do you have a method to your madness or, or what do you do? Typically what I'll do is um, I'll, I'll read stories through the week and then what will happen is on the day of the show, I will go through and go back through the links that I've posted because whenever I read something, I post it and I'll just go back through those and pull out the interesting ones. But also on my um, iPhone, uh, I basically take notes of things that I find interesting. So I bring up a lot of things that aren't actually stories. They're just thoughts that I had. Right. You know, and I'll bring up those. So you use it sort of like as a as like a you know, whatever a memo tracker or something, a note note tracker. App. You have Pretty a note much. tracker app. What do you use? I just use just use Apple Notes. Apple Notes. For, for example, when I was in Ireland, I used an ATM, and the the default denominations that it gave you cash in were so strange 
that I want to talk about it on the show. And I also did a little blog post about it. Right. <laughs> so just things like that. Just as, you know, as I'm, as I'm going along. Yeah. Cause I, I, I've had a, a real frustration with idea capture or the lack right. of capturing ideas that I have. I, I have, I feel like I have a number of, of decent ideas per day, things that are at least kernels of something that would be interesting to think a little more about. But um, I'm not always, I don't always take the time to write them down and then I lose track of them. Two things that I'm trying, I'm going to try now. Um, well, before I say that, what, I've, what I have been doing is I just kind of write them out, write all my ideas and mostly links or just kind of like a, you know, almost like uh, breadcrumbs for an idea. <laughs> It'll remind yeah. me what the idea was, not a full description of it in a text file. It's kind of that big ass text file approach. Yeah, that's the yeah. yeah that's so I went for texting, right? and I'll have like okay, here's like ten or fifteen links that I'm considering bringing up in the show, and then here's some ideas. But um, well, I'm going to start playing around with Evernote. Have you used Evernote at all? Um, I, I haven't used it, but I've heard a lot about it, and I mean it's it's got a massive user base at this stage, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, because I didn't use it partially because I wanted to build like something. I wanted to build something like that for myself because <laughs> I wanted something a little different. But I just am not gonna have the time to do anything like that, obviously, with all their stuff I'm doing. But um, what you can do with Evernote is you can just—it's not like you can just save a link. I, I think like you would with Delicious. But you can actually sort of like select text on a web page and then just say clip and then right click and yeah. select and it'll, it'll store the text. So mm-hmm. a lot of times what's important to me is not, not a link to an article. It's like the two or three key points or there might be like a handful of statistics or some fact that I want to remember. But if there's like a, a five page article, the chance that you're just by having that link that you're going to be able to remember that fact or that statistic, it's, it's, it's not going to happen, right? Yeah. So that's really cool. But the, the thing I wish that I had available, the things that I wanted to build was kind of combining Evernote or something like Evernote um, with, a, um, with something what they call like spaced learning. We've talked a little bit about that. The best way to remember something is to like be presented with the information right at about the time you're go- your, your brain is going to forget it. <laughs> Remember us talking about that in the past? Yeah. And there's a program that was written to do something like that called Super Memo pro or super memo plus or something this russian guy invented it and there's some knockoffs but um essentially it would be really cool it's like you could you know write down an idea or like if you clip these facts or these statistics or these pieces of information and then you know three or four days later you get an email at the beginning of every day and it has like 10 or 15 pieces of information and then you just kind of look at all your 20 go okay and then again randomly some number of those will be presented to you like three weeks later and then a few months later and then you know a year later or whatever that that would really help solidify your uh, memory of these things so that's kind of what i want i want something that helps because with evernote or some idea capture program it it solves sort of the long-term memory you you effectively have this sort of briefcase of long-term memory but it's not really accessible to you right you really remember you have it you could always go back and search for it but the reality is it's not really in your brain you can't really use it to synthesize um, new ideas against other information because it's just not there. You have just vague idea. I think I remember reading this study that said this thing, and that's just kind of BS, right? Um, but if there's some way to get that and then merge it with a system that would help sort of brand it into your brain so it is accessible knowledge. I see. Yeah. So. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's I something I want to do. But the. Um, but you're going to use Evernote for the moment. Anyway. For the moment, because I just I keep just not I'm losing information that I would have like to have captured and it's just like 
you know, keep, I keep thinking, oh, next week I'm just going to build this little thing. And it's just, I never get around to it. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing was, um, I'm just going to use a note card approach. Just keep a note card. Yeah. Or one or two note cards in my back pocket, like those little index cards. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Um, because I'm not really good with texting. Like I can't type really quickly on the iPhone. I find it really annoying. And I'm, I'm sort of a Luddite when it comes to texting. I just essentially refuse to do it. And so my ability to type is really poor. Um, but I, I having a pen and a, and a notepad, I mean, you can, you know, write something really quickly. And, uh, I kind of got that idea from a friend of mine, Pat Maddox, who, um, he'd every day, we, 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 we'd go for lunch and like two or three times during our lunch, you want to write this down? And he just pulled out his card. Yeah, he just pulled out his card. Well, he first started doing it, he had some kind of um, note capture program on his like iPhone, and then he decided to discard it. I, I guess he felt like it was just too cumbersome, and he, he went sort of, he went analog. Hmm. No card, so. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, can we start talking about those links you sent? You, you want to jump in? You want to go? You I do, go yeah, ahead. yeah. You want to go deep and hard early. Okay, well. Well, because, I mean, the, that first link that you sent, which was, um, I, I, did you get it from Hacker News, the decline and fall of the American empire, or did you get it from somewhere else? <sighs> I don't remember. I mean, it's a CBS News article, so it's not some, you know, fringe thing. Um, let me find it real quick. Why don't you, why don't you summarize it? Well, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's a three-page long article, and, and the problem that I have with these long articles like this is I grok, the, I grok them and I understand the general sentiment of the article, but it's very difficult for me to kind of form a coherent sentence, sentence explaining the article. Did you um, read the whole thing? Yeah, I did. I did read the whole thing. And um, I mean, it, it just seems like the article is saying that America is kind of screwed on a lot of different fronts. And by the year 2020 or 20, uh, 2025, it's going to be in the same position that something like Greece is right now. <laughs> no, 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 no. See, I, I think, I think that's, that's, um, what, what, okay. The guy who wrote his game's Alfred McCoy and he's a professor of history at university of Wisconsin, Madison. Right. And he's part of, um, this group called empires in transition, um, which is a global working group of 150 historians from universities all over the world. And they're trying to get a better understanding of, you know, how, how empires you know, grow and how they decline and what mm-hmm. kind of phase transitions happen and, and w- what are the pieces, what are the causes for their decline, their eventual decline? What happened to Rome? What happened to ancient Greece? What happened to Britain? What happened to, you know, Spain? You know, they, these all were great empires. They dominated the world and sometimes for very long periods of time, but they all declined eventually, they all fell. Um, and it didn't always happen because they were just, you know, they just lost some war or something like that. It was much more gradual. And, um, so what this article is really about is about, you know, cause the, the, when you say you, the U S is empire, some people kind of, you know, kind of shrug at that, or they're just like, well, you know, we're an empire, like, you know, like, you know, like, uh, star Wars, <laughs> Like Darth Vader, it's like, no, we're an empire in that we, we are the sole superpower. We essentially control and dominate the world. You know, we put sanctions on countries. We push countries. We have the reserve currency. We have the reserve currency. We, you know, I mean, we, 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 mean, we, we make things happen the way we want them to happen. I mean. The number one economy basically still, as I understand still, it. Still, you know, we're by far the, the biggest military power. You know, we have the reserve currency, like you said. We, you know, are have big imp- control over a big impact. But you said, you, you said when I gave my subscription, my subscription, I said, you know, they're saying that 
in 2025 we could end we could be in a similar situation to greece you said oh no 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 it's, it, that that's not part of this article at all but there is it gives four scenarios and one of those scenarios is basically economic collapse okay well let, let's okay the thing is i think you got to be careful not to overstate it because you overstate it and then it, and then people immediately roll their eyes go give me a break because right, okay. that's not quite what they're talking about what they're saying is it's it's going to no we're no longer going to be the dominant empire i mean for a long time, England, Great Britain, was the world's dominant empire. It didn't become Greece. It didn't collapse. It wasn't road warrior. But they just, after the attack on Suez in the 50s, that combined with after World War II, the losses they incurred, and you know, a, a lot of other factors, they ceased being the dominant power. They couldn't impose their will on the rest of the world. But correct me if I'm wrong, in the article they also say that America isn't placed as well to maintain their wealth in the way that England has been able to. That may be true. We, we, may, have, we may have some other economic problems. And they don't go to, into too much detail about that. I mean, because they right. had to cover a lot of bases in this thing. And it wasn't an entire book. It was just a four-page article. But essentially what they're saying, though, is that the United States, somewhere between 2025 to 2040, will cease being the global global hegemon we will no longer be able to just you know dictate what happens on the world stage we're kind of we're going to just be one of a number of powers china india you know maybe and we'll see what happens with europe but we're just we're, we're we're in decline i mean we we sort of we reached our we reached our apex in the terms of our ability to um dictate world affairs you know, and the after the fall of the Soviet Union, when there were, two, you know, at, when there were instead of being two superpowers, there's one, and 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 Soviet Union was in sort of disrepair and chaos, and it was uh, in the in the 90s, but it really started to fall, and we really started having problems after the invasion of Iraq. Right. Yeah. That's that's where they're saying that America's really going down. But what about um, th this whole America being the kind of reserve currency, and if that gets pulled, then that changes everything for us pretty dramatically because imports will be so much more expensive. Yeah, so the reserve currency is one of these issues that's really interesting because I, at least I had never really heard about it until like maybe a couple of years ago. And um, I think most people, it just wasn't even a term or a, a, a phrase that you would hear, like reserve currency. I think, I think it's important that we define what reserve currency means. Um, and they've done a pretty good job of covering this on uh, Planet Money. There was an episode a couple months back. Because, um, again, you'd hear brought up occasionally, and people are like, what the hell does that even mean? So, right. essentially, if when you'd have two countries doing business together, let's say you have Brazil doing business with our, um, you know, Argentina or Mexico or Sweden or something, right? And they have some major imports going on between them. Or, or, you know, one country wants to, they're, 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 they're trading. Well, you know, trying to figure out, like, what the, uh, the two currencies, like, where, how they relate to one another, it's much more complicated than if you just, if they both have dollars, U.S. dollars, and they use, they pay each other in dollars, or at least they know what their, um, their currency valuation is based on the dollar. Dollar is sort of the normalizing um, value. You know, like in right. chemistry, you'd, you'd always convert everything to moles to do any kind of conversion between any kind of chemical reactions. You always convert stuff to moles. 
And it's kind of like that. That's sort of it. It's sort of like the, the, the normalizer. What is everything's priced in terms of U.S. dollars? And what happens is when everything ha- when all of these major tra- transactions happen, especially transactions and things like oil and, and, and really um, ex- big transactions, um, is that these countries have to store. They have to have a lot of dollars on hand. And which means if everybody has to buy our dollars in order to trade with other countries, that means that we have a lot of control over what we can do. So we can print more dollars. If we want to monetize our debt in a sense that we want to print more money, I mean, not actually printing money in a sense that you're just printing dollar bills, but you're effectively increasing the money supply. Yeah. Then what you're doing is you're essentially exporting inflation around the world. Everybody else has to kind of absorb your inflation to a degree. And what they, they, one really interesting point that they made on this Planet Money um, uh, show podcast, which I highly recommend, by the way, if, if you're interested in economics at all. And they were interview, interviewing a few, um, or at least a couple different pro, uh, economic, uh, economic uh, professors on this subject. And one of the guys said, like, at the U.S., we essentially get like a 2 or 3% tax on the rest of the world by the fact that they have to use our currency. And so you think of like it's almost like we get three percent annuity uh, on the rest of the world. Oh, sorry, is that, is that a good? Uh, That's a good thing. So an annuity is something that you just get like three percent return. Like let's say you put a bank account and you get three percent paid to you every year, right? No right. matter what. Well, the rest of the world, the rest of the world is taxed, and they like it's like they're paying a tax to us. It's like they're paying us. They're hmm. paying the United States, you know, uh, for the privilege of using the dollar because they have to buy the dollars, and we can control the, our own money supply based on what's in our own best interest at any given time. But a lot of countries are a little frustrated by that because if we, for instance, print a lot of money because we're like, wow, you know, we, 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 have, we have to um, counter the deflation of the, um, of the housing crisis because everybody had these houses got bid, bid up so high that everybody had these huge debts that they couldn't pay for, right? So what do you do when you have millions of houses that are, you know, worth 100000 more less than what people owe on it? Without, without shutting down the economy, one sort of short trick or shortcut around that is just like printing dollar and creating a certain amount of inflation that will make those dollars worth less so the debt is less onerous. You see how that works? Now, it's a really complicated subject. I'm not an expert on it, <laughs> you know, so I don't really want to get the impression that I, you know, that, you know, I, I think I'm a professor of monetary policy or anything. I'm just, I do understand it to, uh, at a basic level. And the... But if we lose reserve currency status, then we, we lose that benefit. And that's a big benefit. And a lot of countries are making noise about that because China and other countries, they're like, hey, listen, you know, you, you, we, like China and Japan, they each own like a trillion or $1.5 trillion in national debt. They have that many dollars. That's a way of saying dollars. They, have our, they, they own our debt. So if you have a trillion dollars of somebody's money and they make your dollars worth less and less and less, you're going to get kind of pissed off, aren't you? Hmm. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you owe me um, $10,000, you're in trouble. But if you owe me a million dollars, I'm in trouble. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, you have in, in other countries in China, and, you know, and isn't the only one making noise about it. A lot of countries are starting to get frustrated and say, hey, you know, this is kind of not working for us. That, that the U.S. can just sort of inflate their dollar to get out of their own problems and then basically steal money from us because they make our, what they owe us less valuable. Overall. So they also talk about um, the tech. The if I if I read correctly, the technology of the army. Basically, we will be surpassed by a couple of armies, um, you know, pretty quickly. So 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 we won't have the best 
the best armed force technology in the world. Yeah, so one thing, one thing we should say is that this study took a look at four categories, they, they, which is something along the lines of what the National Intelligence Council, I think, does in sort of like assessing, like they sort of say, okay, let's take a look at collapse uh, from the sort of um, economic ortho, you know, vector. Okay, let's take a look right. at collapse happen on the energy, collapse hack happen based on, um, on military. Mil- military. Yeah, militarily, or any other one was sort of um, you know wars or something like that. There was four four basic categories. So we talked about reserve. World War Three. World War Three was the, the the final, and then military misadventure. Oh, hang on, is that the same thing? Yeah, military misadventures, military. Yeah, 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 yeah. So go on. What were you gonna say about it? Uh, no, no, just that uh, basically um, th- that that's what that's one thing they were saying. I, I never even realized that that was a possibility that. <laughs> it's just me being naive, right? That China's, you know, creating an army that has more advanced than ours, I guess. Well, you know, because what they would do in this article is they say, okay, like, let's just talk about the way things are now. And let's see what could happen over the next 20 years. I'm not saying they're going to happen. They're just sort of like, this is a possibility. And one of them is that, um, you know, we're going to be building more and more of sort of a drone military I mean, our use of drones is increasing dramatically. We're using them all over the place, not just in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We're starting to actually use them uh, to um, on our own borders with Mexico, and there actually have been a couple incidents where they've used it in uh, on private citizens in like North Dakota and uh, Texas. There's a couple incidents recently, but the idea that we can have this sort of automated drone force these these predator drones that that fire hellfire missiles and there's raptor drones there's a bunch of different kinds and i keep seeing these sort of articles come up about these hummingbird drones or whatever so let's just say we have over the next 15 to 20 years we 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 just build a huge drone force because if you have drones and a drone gets down you don't lose a, a human life right it's just a drone and and then people are just sitting back and they're kind of like playing you know the guys are operating almost like video games they're sitting like in tampa florida <laughs> You know, controlling this thing that's flying over Pakistan or Somalia or Yemen or wherever. Um, but they're saying, you know, that China is on a vector technologically to surpass us. Their su- their supercomputer, number one world's pa- most powerful supercomputer is now Chinese, right? And they're saying, you know, that, and they put up a they've put up like th- uh, a um, fleet of I don't know if a fleet uh, this a a, um, a swarm <laughs> flotilla of uh of uh satellites that you know they're gonna have they're very powerful and very technically sophisticated and that they would be able to and that they might be able to sort of hack into our drone force and control or disarm it or dismantle it so basically what what what, what if i understand that correctly what we're saying is we're moving towards a, a war of technology both with the internet and also with the weapons because they're all going to be technology based and the chances are America wouldn't win a war of technology. It could be, you know, it could like, you know, 20, I mean, now we would, but 20 years, that may not be the case, especially if we economically start falling apart, you know, because we are what, 15 trillion in debt now. I mean, we have no, we have no, and we have, we have, I can't, I keep losing track of it. It's like 60 trillion in unfunded liabilities over the next 30 or 50 years. I mean, there's crazy amounts of money that we owe that we may never be able to pay back. And if that happens, then we're going to have to really retract our uh, global sort of military empire, in which case, if we're not spending that money because we're kind of growing broke, then countries that aren't going broke and are investing in their advanced technology like China may at some point be able to stand toe-to-toe with us or surpass us at some point. 
So to tie in with this is the fact that our education system is going downhill and we're, whereas we used to produce the most graduates, we're now sort of number 12 in the world. Yeah. And then patents, you know, the number of patents being filed and half the graduate students in the US and technical. Well, the, the patents being filed is interesting is um, China's catching up with us to the point where they're going to start yeah, filing more patents than us per year. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's just sort of like a, that's just a metric, you know, I mean, who knows how valuable these patents are and what they really mean, but they're just, it's just like an indicator, right? It's like, you know, what percentage of graduate students in our elite technical programs are foreign and who return back to their countries at some point, you know, and what percentage of patents are filed and whatever. I mean, in our overall education system, I mean, these kinds of things are just metrics, but they're not going in the right direction to, for us to say, be a, a dominant power at some point, you know, we may not we'll do that. But what does this all mean to our listeners and why should they care? Why should they care? Well, for listeners, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons. I mean, it's, it's very, um, it's very integrated into everything. I mean, um, first of all, a lot of our listeners aren't even in America. I think right. a lot of them are Australia and Europe. But, but they're integrated into the tech ecosystem, and I'm guessing this will affect the tech ecosystem. Is that yeah, what? Yeah, well, what you're I mean, I, I, it may at some point. I mean, I, I don't know if you can, you know, really say it. it it's going to affect you in the next five years in your web startup. <laughs> I don't think it. That's it's at that level of granularity. But um, the U.S. economy could start. We could start seeing early problems. You know, I mean. But the, but really, what they're talking about is the the fall of the empire as a result of those problems. And you know, one thing we keep doing is we keep starting these wars of aggression. Iraq, Afghanistan, um, we're really pushing hard on uh, Iran now. I mean, I think there is a reasonable chance that we could end up getting in a war with Iran this year, which would be really really bad, way worse than whatever you 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 know. I mean, Iraq was a nightmare. We lost twenty thousand. Troops were injured, severely injured. 4,500 were killed. 60,000 Iraqis were killed in battle. About a million in excess deaths. A trillion dollars of, of U.S. money was spent on it. I mean, it's just an absolute disaster. And, uh, you know, Iran was it a disaster? Fi- was it a disaster financially? I mean, did we get any of the oil that we were supposed to have got? <laughs> right. So, yeah, this, this Machiavellian thing that we're going to get the oil, right? And everyone says, oh, you know, I mean, all, the, all this sort of skeptics were like, you know, no blood for oil, right? Which was, which was a big part of it. Oil wasn't the whole point of it. There were other, you know, geopolitical things going on. And that's probably a whole nother long discussion. But um, no, we don't have, you know, are, are the, the, a lot of the um, big oil companies are from other countries. They're not U.S. They're not U.S. oil companies. But even, even, the, even the countries companies that you might say are their U.S. oil companies, they're transnational corporations. They don't even pay taxes. I mean, you know, uh, Exxon Mobil pay like approximately zero taxes. So you can't really call them a U.S. company anyway. Right? I mean, if they don't pay taxes here and they're, and they're, and they're uh, transnational, are they American? No. <laughs> Not in any material way. But um, anyway, the bottom line is if we attack Iran... Um, or some Gulf of Tonkin sort of incident happens because our aircraft carrier now is we're getting this sort of saber rattling thing going on with their navy, and you know they're threatening to shut down the Straits of Hormuz, and we're amassing troops now in Israel all over these different points. And I mean, it would just be I mean, two you're, you're gonna see, you would see two hundred dollar oil almost overnight. And so the upshot of that would be, I mean, is there any good news? Massive. That would be <laughs> massive financial problems for the whole world. Especially the U.S. and the whole world. Yeah, if we if we get into a war with Iran, it's going to be uh, you know a big 
at the very least, it's going to be a, a serious recession. Did you ever see that episode of Star Trek where these little creatures kind of got into the bodies and um, into the spinal cortex of all the people controlling the Federation? And then they basically started a, a new kind of government within the Federation by all the people who were infected with these kind of crazy little creatures. <laughs> Do you think something like that's going on right now? Because it seems like, that, like we're just driving ourselves into the ground. Yeah, it's, um, this is something I follow a lot. And, uh, you know, you keep asking, like, why are we doing it? I mean, what's, like, who's driving the ship? And what, what, what's, the, what's the point of yeah. trying to of start a war? I mean, a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, Netanyahu and sort of the right, very right wing of the Likud party in, in Israel. I mean, they are really pushing hard for that in, in APAC in the U.S. But the, the Pentagon, we have sort of this, the U.S. is ever since our puppet, the Shah, was, um, was overthrown. So if people don't know, I mean, like, the, there was a democratically elected leader of Iran in the 50s, Mossadegh, and the CIA essentially um, overthrew him, supported his overthrow, and we installed the Shah. And the Shah, you know, because he was, because we essentially installed him and everything like that, he had, in order to make control, he had to have like these sort of really nasty, you know, sort of secret police that did a lot of nasty things to his population, which made the Iranian population not too endeared to us, right? Because um, they went from a, a democratically elected leader to a, uh, a dictator or king or whatever he called himself, Shah. And then, um, then there was a revolution. And, um, you know, we've, we've had our, and Washington has had, has had their feelings hurt ever since, you know, mm. <laughs> we had our, and so we've refused to have normalized relations with them. And, you know, we just, we just basically are at odds with any, you know, power that really doesn't bow to us to some degree, you know, either play ball with us or we're going to be at odds with you. I mean, we still have, we're still doing all kind of BS things with Russia and China. I mean, a lot of what we're doing in Afghanistan, all stuff has to do with, um, sort of boxing in China and Russia in different ways, our missile defense systems that we put, our anti-missile defense systems that we put all around Eastern Europe and, you know, our wanting to get into Syria and, um, you know, our, our getting control of Africa and the oil resources and stuff to, to limit what um, China can have access to. It has a lot to do with throttling China's growth. I mean, you know, it's really complicated, a lot of details, and, you know, obviously way more we can get into here, but um, bottom line is if we attack Iran... It's just going to be really bad. And I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I think there's better than a 50-50 shot. It's going to happen within the next year. If, if, if it looks like that a, a GOP candidate is going to come through, because if, you, if you've ever watching the debates, I mean, they're all like, you know, each one is like, you know, trying out to the other, like how quickly they, can bomb, they want to bomb Iran. If it looks like someone's going to win who isn't going to, and, or whoever gets, whoever gets the GOP nomination and, it looks like they're not going to be able to take uh, beat Obama. You might, there might be a situation where, you know, um, Israel is going to try and force our hand and create some kind of Gulf of Tonkin incident, and then we get sucked right into it. So one thing I, w- I want to ask you is the the kind of level of kind of negativity in this kind of story and this kind of thinking. Do you think a that you can do anything about this, and do you think B, it's it would, might actually be better to just ignore this kind of story. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I go back and forth in that stuff. So, like, I kind of like get really heavy into this stuff for a while, and I read and read and read about it, and then I get 
and then I just burn out and I just get frustrated and then I sort of ignore it <laughs> for a while because right there's no I can't make any direct impact on it really right um, and you know the but at the same sense if nobody it, it's almost like ethics right it's like if I say, you know, if, if, if you threw some garbage on the ground and I said, Justin, you, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't litter. It makes, and you'd be like, well, Jason, you know, so if I threw some garbage on the ground, who cares? I mean, it's insignificant overall, right? It's like, well, if everybody threw garbage on the ground, we live in a garbage dump, right? It's yeah. unethical. So if nobody pays attention and nobody cares about anything, then you lose control. I mean, we are a democracy. I mean, it, we are supposed to be controlling our government directly. But what I'm saying, I mean, you, you would basically... Okay, you can you can pay attention and you can listen, but you're basically going to have to get into politics. Yeah, to I do, mean, I to think, make a change. It, well, you know, if you, if you think about like the SOPA thing, right? I mean, a, a, one of the one of the, the um, things that happened as a result of that is a bunch of uh, the, sort of the hive mind of Reddit came out and went after um, one of the um, one of the uh, I guess the the signet the, the co sponsors or something. Yeah, of the uh, of the SOPA bill, and they caused a lot of problems, and, and and that kind of stuff actually can have an impact. It may not be enough, but you know, you get a bunch of people doing something, and you know, the the government can respond. I mean, the article that I wrote about SOPA, my sort of Machiavellian post, saying, hey, you know, the Silicon Valley is going to have to start putting investing money into lobbying and donations to the Congress, if they're going to have any impact or say on what happens. And SOPA being one example of something they should care about. I was going to say, it's funny because sometimes when I talk to you, you're like the most political person. And sometimes when I talk to you, you just don't care anything about politics. I don't care about the horse race politics. I don't care about the red state, blue state, Republican, Democrat stuff. I think that stuff's all kind of a, a charade. I don't think any of that stuff's really, I think that, that, I think that distracts everybody from what's really going on. Um, I think things like SOAP are really important. Things that are more important are like the National Defense Authorization Act, which Obama signed on, on um, New Year's Eve, which, mm. which authorizes, codifies um, the indefinite detention of U.S. citizens accused, not proven, accused of being terrorists. Indefinitely. I mean, you'd be thrown. Even John Stewart had a thing on it. It was hilarious. Mm. He even had an eight-minute funny thing on it, you know, uh, you know, a grim sort of gallows humor on it. I care about stuff like that. You know, I care about, uh, I care about, you know, us starting a war with Iran. I care about, uh, right. you know, you know, uh, the, um, the shredding of the constitution. I care about massive corruption that's in government and nowadays. And, you know, that stuff I care about, you know, like red, typical red state, blue state stuff, I, I think is kind of like not even nearly as important. All right, well, we've done about 25 minutes on that. Would you like to move on to the next one? Yeah, let's, let's go light. That was heavy. You know what I was watching the other day? Go on. I was watching, have you ever seen um, Brad, what's it, Brad Metzler's uh, Decoded on the History Channel? I haven't. Brad Meltzer. I, he's, a, he's a writer. I guess he's actually a guy who's written, he did a bunch of stuff. Uh, I, was, I looked him up on Wikipedia because I was like, you know, you have a story we have like a TV show named after someone. You feel like hey, this guy must be a big deal. Like who's Brad Meltzer? He's like a professor of history at Harvard or something or whatever. turns out he's did a bunch of comic books. Like he wrote a bunch of story like Batman or Superman stuff, I think. And he's written a bunch of books. Um, so he's more just a, just a writer, I guess. But um, what was interesting is they did, they had a, um, they had, they did a thing on Houdini, Harry Houdini, the magician. Yeah. And I was like, and they were talking about, they were like, you know, because they're, they're kind of like trying to, they follow up on something that's sort of like a, 
I don't know if we'd say it's a conspiracy, but some kind of like there's a there's this idea that you know how did Harry Houdini die? Was he was it a suicide or was he actually murdered and who killed him and why? That yeah, thing. And I was like, I would love to read a biography on Houdini, but I don't want to read a 500 page biography. I want to read 30 pages. I want to read like an hour and a half, two hours, like one one night. And I would love it if like if there were like these 30 page, 30 to 50 page mini bio biographies that you could read on people because a lot of these things, I don't know how many biographies you've read, but a lot of times they're just so, um, they get so caught up in the minutia. It's like, you got to be really interested in this person to, you know, commit like weeks to reading this biography, you know? Did you know that Houdini <clears throat> promised to his wife that he would come back to her after he died? And it was like one of the, one of the things they were both very kind of spiritual. <laughs> yeah, they spiritual. both, they both, they're both in the metaphysical. They both made that promise to each other. They're both very spiritually inclined. And on the, on the night of his death for the next 10 years, she held a seance and said, you know, Houdini, are you there? But, but he never came to her. Well, you know, um, one of the theories that they were pursuing was whether his wife was um, the one who actually orchestrated his killing because some guy came up into a bar and actually said, I, you know, Mr. Houdini, I hear that you could absorb, you know, really hard, you know, any, any hit to the, into the body, or whatever. So punched him two times or three times really hard to the stomach. And, and, the, and he ended up having appendicitis at that same time. It coincided and died like a few days later. Hmm. And it turns out his wife paid off of the two or three um, um, witnesses. And they're wondering, you know, why would she pay off? Because she actually got a big, I guess the, the, the way the insurance happened, if it was the, the way the death, the kind of death that, uh, that occurred, whether it was an accident or murdered, whatever, the payout would be completely different. So she paid these people off. And, and it turns out that Houdini was having an affair with um, the wife of uh, Jack London, the guy who wrote Call of the Wild and stuff. But, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Those couples were really good friends. And, um, and I, I guess he was starting to have an affair with his wife and that, that was the whole thing. I only saw like the last half of this biography and I just saw it like a few nights ago. That's, that's how I know this, but that's a great book, Call of the World. Yeah. You, you know what, you know, what's interesting. <laughs> they were, they were asking, cause they were talking about whether Houdini was actually a spy during world war one because he had these amazing ability, you know, picking locks and he could of course, you know, hide information and travel and nobody ever would ever consider him to be a spy, whether he was, whether he was spying on the, uh, I guess on the, the Kaiser's Navy or whatever in Germany, I guess World War I, something along those lines. I only caught like 30 seconds of that, but I was like, wow. So that would be interesting. That'd be fascinating to read about. But it's like, I don't know if I could dedicate three weeks to reading about it. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to read like a bi two, three hour biographies a week. So you would like a new series of books, something like The Idiot's Guide to Home Brewing, but like <laughs> that, that whole Idiot's Guide concept, but you'd like it is like the 30 page biog. No, I just, it's not idiots. I just call it a super abridged. Like, just, yeah. dude, just yeah, the, the, the 30 page biography. Call it like that. 30, three weeks of my life. I mean, I give you two hours, three hours, you know, a couple of nights, I'll, I'll read it. You know, I could maybe be into Houdini for three nights. Or maybe I'll read about JP Morgan or read about, you know, Charles Darwin or something. I don't know if I'm interested in Darwin to read three weeks, but I could, I would love a night or two, I'd read it. That's what I want. <laughs> I think there's a 30 page, because it always reminds me of, um, well, one of the problems with all these nonfiction books is you get down to it and they really could have been summarized in 10 pages, 20 pages. Right. And they, and they make it into an entire 300 page books because that's how books are sold. But as we get into the world of ebooks and e, you know, e publishing and Amazon working directly now, kind of subverting 
uh, the publishing industry and, um, and have, and working out deals directly with authors and you could sell books for, you know, a couple bucks as I, you know, kind of like more than white paper is less than a book and ebook form. Maybe, maybe we could get stuff like that. It would pay for people to write like a series of 30 page books because you're not going to buy a 30 page book in a bookstore probably. Cause you're like, what the hell is this thing? Right. So I got uh, 40 points on Hacker News today. You did? I did, yeah. With a, not, not with a, my own story, but I just happened to, because of my, the, the jet lag, right, coming back from Ireland, I keep waking up at 12, 12 p.m. Irish time, which is 5 a.m. Um, American, well, uh, Los Angeles time. And so I'm sort of looking through stories and Google News, and there was an interesting one about how Moore's Law may work for years to come due to quantum anomaly. I submitted it to Hacker News, and it took off. Got 40 Let's hear a little more about it. So what, what was, what's the gist of it? Well, the gist of it is is that um, after studying the way that electricity flows through nano, nano-sized wires, they had a, a, a prediction about how the kind of quantum effect that was going to happen when you made the wires very small, which was going to make it kind of impossible for, for electricity to travel correctly through those wires mm-hmm. on a small level. But as it turns out, when they, when they do create those wires that small, um, the prediction was, was not correct. Um, the quote from the article is, scientists have predicted that it may not be long before the transistor's performance is compromised by unpredictable quantum effects. So that's basically why they said it wasn't going to work. And the comment that someone replied to that in Hacker News, they say, it's comforting to hear that the unpredictable quantum effects were, in fact, unpredictable. <laughs> <laughs> Science wins even when it fails. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that's why you have to sometimes, you know... It, take a little bit of uh, skepticism when you know we get we, we have a lot of hubris in our and, and scientists or or we have a lot of hubris in thinking that we really understand the universe that yeah but the reality is we do and we don't there's still a lot of things that we think we understand and it turns out we didn't understand it so well and <laughs> we put always limits well technology will never do this or people will never do that or well this will never be possible because of x y and z principles well sometimes those principles turn out to be as rock solid as we thought they were or they're sort of edge cases or, or whatever just that they need to be engineered a different way and that's just another good example of that that's really cool so there was that one then also i have a, some um a question that i would like to ask um hacker news and I'm also interested to ask texting listeners as well. Um, so obviously flying, flying backwards and forwards from um, America to Ireland, one thing that you get to use a lot is in-flight entertainment systems. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when it basically broke and it rebooted and I noticed that it was Linux. I just wondered, what, what is the architecture of an in-flight entertainment system? Do they have like, I'm just curious if any listener might know, or I, I'm kind of thinking of asking this in the Hacker News. Like, do they have like one Linux box that's controlling 400 people's screens and each screen is talking to that one Linux box or they have like a farm of Linux boxes and, or, or is each screen its own light, light, light installation of Linux? I mean, how, how does it all hang together? See, one of the good things about this podcast is we have about 1500 listeners, most of them, most of whom are extremely technically bright. Yeah. <laughs> and so somebody's going to know. It's like we have a super brain. We just ask the hive mind. Somebody will know. What would be your guesstimate? I don't really know. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. I, don't, I mean, I, is it that, there's that, that there are whether that's little mini computers or one major computer? Well, I noticed that when it booted, when it rebooted, every single person's screen said the same thing. It all said, it basically, yeah. it all had the same information. So that leads me to believe that it's like a single, a single computer instance. But that's kind of hard to believe because there's 400, 500 passengers 
each of those can play a game, right? So imagine if, I don't know, 50 people were playing a game at the same time via, mm-hmm. the, via some kind of thin client. So you're thinking maybe that switch was just some kind of a power system that was ignited that, and they all started up at the same time, not necessarily one so, computer. Yeah, I don't know. I, See, I, I don't, I just, I've never used in the system, so other than watching a movie, I'm not even really aware of what you're talking about. There's video games and stuff you can play? Well, yeah, you will. Well, even everyone can watch a movie. I mean, you're all watching a movie at a different, a different time, so imagine streaming 500 movies, you know? I mean, would, would you expect that to be the work of a single a single linux machine or would you expect that to be the work of some kind of server farm mm. maybe they're like mini i i bet you there are lots of mini you know small uh compact computers that are in people's you know whatever side rest or so you think it's actually in the chair i'll go with the, i'll go with the um distributed you're going to go with centralized i i'm i'm thinking centralized what what my my guess is is that each screen is some kind of a uh, virtual terminal instance on mm-hmm. like one or two uh, central servers, mm. and 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 then it's like to- it's it's sort of using like uh, you know how like X Windows works, right? Like e- each screen is like a, a like a virtual X Windows instance or something like that. Mm. Well, I guess see the thing is it's kind of a gray area because it's like at what point is it just sort of a display mechanism, or what is it, or is it its own computer, in, or is a computer in its own right? You know, because it's, in some cases, there is some electronics there. There is some kind of microprocessor there controlling a display and stuff like that. The question is, is the logic of the games and or is all the other information, the stuff that's pulling the movie, streaming it out of some kind of data store, is that a, you know, how much of it is in this, is in that sort of one location versus every seat? Yeah. That's, that's basically, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's wait till we get an answer because uh, we don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> So another quick, another quick little light one. Um, did I already tell you about the um, Irish ATM thing? I, I did. I told you. I made. But you it, made had it, an idea, but you didn't. I made note to it. Yes. Yeah. So, so I posted this on my blog. Basically, the title of the blog is "Did you hear the one about the Irish ATM?" So I used an ATM in Ireland, and the the default prices. You know, when you go into the kind of withdrawal screen, right? Mm-hmm. Where where it kind of shows you know how, how much would you like to withdraw, and it has like eight defaults on the screen. So on, on the screen, there's eight buttons, and the, the default amounts are 20, 40, 90, 120, 150, 170, 220. Okay. Do, do you find that strange? The increments? Are there eight choices of the increments? Yeah, I'm just going to ping you that link there. I'm just have, just, just click that link, and you'll see, and then we can be talking about the same thing. Mm. One. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. 20, 40, 90, 120, 150, 170, 220, 20. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just wondering what the rationale might be that for, you know, like what, what, were the, what were the business people, what were the programmers thinking when they made that? Um, when it was just baited, maybe they just optimized it. Maybe they tried lots of different com- combinations and um, people pulled out the most money. It was in this. I mean, well, I don't even care. I don't I wonder, because I mean, <laughs> banks do, it's not like they're spending them. I just because they're pulling that money out of the bank doesn't mean they're spending it. So exactly. Does the, does the, what is their best interest? I mean, I wonder if it's in their best interest that people take lots of smaller amounts and pay transa- ATM transaction fees. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, if I'm the bank and I make a dollar fifty every single time that you pull out twenty bucks, every time you make a withdrawal, I'm going to want you to do small withdrawals three or four times a week rather than one withdrawal like once every few weeks. So you're going to kind of suggest that I that I go under rather than taking out a hundred, I take ninety. Yeah, rather than taking a hundred, you take forty. Someone suggested that it was cash balancing, that basically it was to do with, um, you know, the amount of notes. 
But anyway, I just thought it was just weird and interesting. Um, and once again, another technical conundrum. <laughs> another technical conundrum yet to be solved. So <laughs> yeah. we talked about this offline yesterday, but just give a little synopsis. So how you feel being back? Good. Um, I mean, obviously, I love uh, all my friends in Ireland and England, and I'm from Ireland and England. But having spent three years in America, I really appreciate America so much more now after going back to those countries in the cold winter. You've become kind of an American. You've become a, Sal- a Southern Californian. A, l- a little bit. I mean, California, I guess, is the thing. I mean, California, the weather is just amazing here. Is it so, if you grew up in Chicago or Detroit or any of those places? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's cold and brutal there. You wouldn't be like going to Ireland going, you wouldn't be coming back going, oh, thank God, it's nice and warm. Wait a minute, it's freezing cold here too. <laughs> it's worse. Well, I mean, actually, after two weeks of being there, it, it, I, I began to get a little bit more, um, you know, used to the cold. Yeah, you you, got, you started to develop a thick skin. Yeah, you could do. Yeah, that happens when, you know, when uh, in Chicago when I go back at first, I'm just you know if I go back in the winter, it just blows my mind how cold it is, and then it takes me a little while just to kind of learn how to brace myself when I walk out the front door and that like negative twenty degree gust of wind hits me. I'm like, holy. Crap. Well, the one thing is like in Ireland, the kind of in Dublin, the the coldness. I think it may even be perceived to be colder than a minus 20. And I'll tell you why. I've got some, some logic behind this, right? So it, it's always just hovering just above minus, just above zero degrees. Mm-hmm. And there's always like little droplets of water in the air because it's next to the ocean. So you get this kind of really cold, kind of wet. humid, wet feel all wet the time. Wet cold is really hard to deal with. But yeah. like anything below minus five and those droplets kind of freeze and fall to the ground. So, you, so the air tends to be quite crisp. So right. I, I mean, for example, if I've if I've gone skiing, you know, I went to Whistler one time, and I know that was pretty cold, but it didn't feel as cold as Dublin, even though it was, well, you know, well below minus five. Right, right, right. Huh. So let's, let's talk, one thing. Let's revisit real quick. So the next time you take a vacation, what would you limit it to? Because you went six weeks this time. If you two two weeks, two weeks, two weeks is probably what you do. Yeah, I think two weeks, ten days to two weeks is probably a good a good amount of time because you see the thing is you don't want to go to Europe for a week. No, right. it's, it's, just, it's just too far. It's too far. The, the you, ratio of travel to actual time there and, yeah. and recovery is too, is too high. That's right. You, but you don't want to go for a month because it's just too long. You just get bored. You're not, do, you're not doing anything. You're just kind of, I mean, unless you're, unless you're one of these people who you like, you're like, I'm going to go backpack across Europe for three months or that kind of thing. You're just going to, that's what you're going to do. But you're traveling. You're not just staying in one place. I thought I was one of those people, but as I found out when I'm a bit older, I'm not quite so much one of those people. (laughs) I have had a few friends of mine say that a a, a friend, a couple that's a, uh, that we're friends with, they, um, they went to India and, um, Todd Mona, Mo, Mona's uh, Indian, and they went to India, and it was hilarious because she kept talking about, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll we'll stay in a hostel or do this, and, and Todd's like, I don't know, <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. I, I couldn't it's do really that, fun. and he's like, I th- he's like, I really think we're like, you know, at least you know, three, if not four star people. Now, I don't know if we can do it. Sure enough, they got over there, and it was just way too rough for them. The, the yeah. you know staying in the inexpensive hotels and just you know you just I think when you're young yeah young you 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 have like a backpack and you stay in crappy little hotels or hostels and eat crappy food and I don't know you just you're just able to just not make it ruin your day but I think once you get the older you get the less you're willing to deal with that you're you're just like ah screw it <laughs> I want to go home once you're a full star person it's difficult to go back yeah and, and I, I think it, as you get older I just think you just you just 
become more accustomed to your creature comforts. Yeah. You know, you just, just, it just, it bothers you more. You're, which, which, which is a problem. I mean, it makes you less flexible, right? I mean, if you're, if you're, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not with everybody. I'm sure there's some people who are in their 50s or 60s and can kind of, you know, I don't know, um, hitchhike across the country. But I think for most of us, it's like you just, you just lose that sort of thick skin, that sort of lust for adventure over comfort. But I wonder, I hate to go back to the decline of fall of the American Empire. <laughs> But this, I wanted to bring this up <laughs> as a reason. I wanted to bring this up as one of the reasons for the decline. I wonder if, as a, as a nation, because we're so wealthy, that we've got to the point where we just basically outsource everything, and because we kind of just don't, we don't get involved anymore. We don't do the hard work. We don't do the hands-on. So basically, uh, we're paying other people to do our stuff, and it, it, we're paying China to do our stuff. And and at some stage, the day has to come when the wealth migrates from USA to China. You know, that's what they're saying, and the thing is that the, 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 there's never been, it's never before precedent the amount of wealth that's going from one part of the world to the other, from just traveling from west to east now. Right. We're this massive yeah. trade amounts. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there's, a lot of, there's sort of a lot of um, tangents you could take on this, but one, I mean, first thing to say is like some aspect of our country is wealthy, the top, you know, 10%. But, you know, the, the middle class is kind of being eviscerated. And so, like, you know, the whole 99, 1% thing is... No, but, but companies are being lazy, right? They're going, okay, look, I'm, being, I'm just going to be lazy. I'm not going to set up my own workforce to do this. I'm just going to outsource, outsource this because it saves me money. But in the meantime, we're just, you know, draining our mind pool. Well, that's what the, the, there, there was a thing we talked about a while, a while ago about Dell Computer. It's a big critique about how Dell Computer... You know, I guess there was some Taiwanese or Chinese um, manufacturer that was doing like some part, some circuit for them. And they said, oh, and they came back and said, oh, we can do the circuit for you. We can actually do not only this, but we can do the microprocessor and the memory. And they're like, okay, fine, do that for us too. And then, oh, we can do the microprocessor and memory and the circuit and we can do the whole circuit board. And they're like, okay, great. They said, well, we can do that. Actually, we can do these other components. And, you know, Dell's like, fine. And pretty soon, all of their core competencies, all of their expertise, Everything about the machine was being built, manuf- designed, manufactured essentially by this outside entity where Dell was becoming more and more just a distribution logistics company based on yeah. those materials. So they lost the ability to innovate and improve on the product because they just didn't understand it well enough. They didn't have that real, um, I don't know, that, that just yeah, the in-depth understanding that you need. Um, whereas, yeah. I, th- you know, I, think, I think they were using Apple as a, as a different example, whereas Apple used pieces around, but they never gave it to anyone company and they kept very um i guess they had a lot more hands-on understanding of every piece and everything about it i mean i don't know but yeah that's a problem i mean that's a huge problem that's been a problem that's been recognized for a long time it's like when you outsource everything and eventually you don't have people in the u.s or even in western europe at some point who even understand the technology there's nobody around who use it they talked about that a lot of time with the um like our, the U.S.'s nuclear weapons program, eventually you just don't have anyone from the Cold War area and engineers and people who even understand these weapons systems, <laughs> you know, or even understand these nuclear bombs and like who the hell's going to maintain them and keep them from, you know, falling into disrepair or whatever. All right, have you got another light one before we get back into the dark? <laughs> back into the darkness. We're shadow hopping. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> yeah. Shadow hopping. I think that'll be the... the uh, That's a good, yeah, good title. Yeah. Um. So... Um, yeah, I had a couple of ideas, things that I want to talk about. Um, well, one, you know, one thing that was kind of interesting. Um, I got a, um, I, I, all of a sudden I started getting a bunch of followers or actually people who were 
don't know if you say follow. I guess people who had me in their circles in Google Plus, right? Let's just call them followers because it's a little easy. People who've encircled you. Yeah, it's just a such a mouthful. It's 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 just followers. Okay, so all of a sudden, I every time I refresh my browser, I have like five new people. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I haven't even posted anything in like a week. Yeah, like where are these people coming from? And I and over a period of like a, you know, actually over the past three days, I've had about two hundred people. I went from like five twenty to seven hundred and twenty. It's probably more since we started the show. And so I wrote a little post. I said, hey, by the way, <laughs> where's everybody coming from? You know, if you please leave a comment, explain. Because I was like, I was wondering if something was broken. Yeah. Because what had happened once to us on, I don't know if it was Libsyn or SoundCloud, like we had a ton of new people downloading the show. We're like, wow, look at that. And then it turned out it was just like a technical glitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, so you want to find out if that's... We're all that sad and depressed. <laughs> we thought we had broke the show so quickly. And... um that's what I thought. I said, you know, I don't want to get excited about this, but I, maybe I'll just refresh and it'll, it'll go back to 520 or something. And as it turns out, someone had written an article or created a circle of people who had, I guess, written something substantial ab- about SOPA or anti-SOPA people. Right. And I was on that list of people because of my SOPA post. And all of a sudden, that's where everybody came from. That and, could get you flagged. Get me that could. Yeah, that could get you flagged. Like, Big Brother could start listening to everything you say. <laughs> that was funny. Alfie, uh, who's a, a, guy, a guy I know who um, actually, I, I, I think I met him through Google Plus of all places. He's like, yeah, let's hope the anti-SOPA list doesn't become the, uh, the, an- the was it the anti, the no-fly list, <laughs> the under-surveillance list. I don't, <laughs> uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think we're there yet. But um, anyway, that was funny, though. That, uh, But you know what's interesting is that it was just an example, like when you actually do something, we actually go out in the world and create something. And this is just something I spent like an hour writing, you know, maybe an hour and a half. And I got like probably 150 new followers who came directly from like Hacker News and a couple other places to, uh, after, as a result of writing that post. Yeah. I think like 165 people gave me a, a plus upvote. And I had like, I don't know, like 95 or something like that reshares. So there was kind of a long, you know, kind of like a, a ripple effect. And then it came alive again with somebody doing this. So I got, I got another 200 people. It's just amazing. You just, you kind of plant these seeds and then all of a sudden something comes of it. Okay. And, I've got, I've got, I've got an example of Lux surface area working in the wrong way. Oh, <laughs> okay. So my friend, um, very, a good friend um, and a, a texting listener as well, um, but was a friend obviously before texting existed. Um, Tyler Nichols, um, he wrote a piece on his weblog. So what, what he, what he did uh, this Christmas and for the last few Christmas, he's done this thing where he, you can go to his site and create a Santa card, you know, so create a Santa letter for your kid. Yeah. I read that one. (laughs) Right. So, so he, he just like, just, he, he is absolutely uninterested in, in getting hacker news recognition or anything like that. He just has a few friends who follow his blog. And he was just—he was just kind of saying, like, a sort of just a thing to say to people. Look, oh wow, I am really, you know, I've did my Santa letter, and I'm just sick of this, and this is my experience, and it—I just don't want to do free when I do this thing next. Yeah, he's year. like, uh, well, I actually wrote that thing down as something to talk about. <laughs> it was like, I don't know if it was—it wasn't in my top ten, but it was like maybe twenty. Yeah. Just like I'm done with free or something like that. Was yeah, that- and but he means him. He wasn't saying he wasn't making a public statement saying, okay, you know freemium business models are no good under all circumstances. He's just saying, I personally am done with free. 
Yeah, but actually the title was I am done with the freemium business model. Exactly. Yeah, that was the title. But so, of course, what happens is some someone uh, posts on, on Hacker News and it, it really takes off on Hacker News. And people are so aggressive, you know, people get very aggressive. Now, <laughs> you know how some people just hate attention? Yeah. You know, the Tyler's one of those people. And in fact, probably he's going to be so, you know, pissed that I'm talking about this right now. <laughs> <laughs> so another fifteen hundred people to <laughs> yeah you're gonna make a reverse donation to Tyler yeah right so um yeah so just lots of attention so then that gets on Hacker News but not only that then it ended up on the Guardian UK website and it ended up on a bunch of other websites like main you know major major blogs so I think he ended up with something like forty thousand hits to his yeah. blog looking at this with huge amounts of comments basically saying, oh, you're so wrong. The freemium business model is amazing. There's loads of different ways that you can use it. And, you, you know, you're a spammer and just <laughs> all troll. this. Yeah, the trolls, they call them trolls. If you say anything right. that's, that's, you know, in the slightest controversial, you're a troll, you know, which is you're trolling. So they, call it, they accuse you of. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with what he was saying. I mean, basically his point was that he was he was – his free customers, which is something that we've heard a lot about from people directly from the entrepreneurs we've interviewed, which is that the free customers tend to be more self-righteous, more hard work, more demanding, and just and, and, and less sophisticated. And so they just basically suck up all your resources, and they, don't convert, and they never convert anyway. Right. right? Yeah. I'm, oh. I'm laughing because one of the comments he got was <laughs> someone really with real vitriol saying, what value are you providing? Like, <laughs> it's like it's a, just it's a Santa letter website. I mean, what what value do you need to provide? <laughs> I mean, wh- why is that even relevant to the discussion? What value is anybody providing? Let's get really philosophical about it. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's, yeah, well, that's funny. I mean, so maybe he probably won't blog about this stuff anymore. <laughs> no, he's he's going to do a follow up blog, I think, and he's just going to basically say, look, you know, I I wasn't saying that all freemium is bad. I mean, it obviously works for companies like Evernote and other companies out there. Um, Dropbox works great. Um, it's just, I was talking about me. Yeah, you know, it's, that's, that's, you know, we talked about this a lot, so I won't say much about it, but it's just that it, so many of these rules, these heuristics are just context dependent. It really just, you, you can't just, these blanket statements about this works and this doesn't work and, you know, all these rules that you hear people talk about on Hacker News about, you know, release early, release often, you need design, you don't need design, you got to do this, you got to do that. I mean, you know, it just depends. It just depends. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody, can, nobody can just get over the fact that it just depends because as tech geeks, we like these beautiful, simple formulas that are, that are universal, Truths. Right. We want them. We we seek them. We yearn for these simple truths because it makes the world simpler and, and it makes us able to sort of comprehend things and be confident that we're making the right decision as opposed to saying, well, I have no idea if I'm making the right decision. I think this is 55-45% chance. <laughs> I just hope I'm on the 55 side, right? You know, right. I don't know. So, but you know, the was funny thing is like on, on, on a couple past things that I've had go big on Hacker News, I um I was fairly responsive in the comments. But this time on the SOPA one, I didn't respond at all. I didn't even make write one single comment because it was just going to suck my entire day, or it probably would a day and a half just gone. I think that's a good that's a good decision. You know, and I thought, you know what I'll do, and I felt a little bad. I mean, like Alex wrote a really long, and he made some really cogent points that were objecting to some of the things that I was saying, which you know I thought were 
were worthy of response, but I was like, you know, I just can't afford to spend hours writing intelligent responses to all of this stuff. You mm-hmm. know, I kind of made my point. Um, a lot of people are willing, are, are free to nitpick, you know, specific things that they disagree with or degree in, or, or disagree in principle if they want. And, you know, but I think, you know, maybe what I should do in the end, if I want to clarify some things or expand on some things that I thought I did a, didn't do as good a job explaining, I should just write a follow-up. Yeah. But, you know, it takes a lot of time. I mean, I feel like I owe our texting listeners comments because I feel like we have a little more personal relationship with them. I mean, it's a little different when someone just does a flyby, they read your post and they write a, they go, blah, 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 this, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, do I really owe that person something? Do I really owe them 20 minutes of my time or 15 minutes of my time thinking about what they said in writing? I don't know if I owe them that. But I feel like people who spend hours, in, you know, listening to our show write something to us, and usually it's very positive, I feel like they deserve a, a response. So I'll respond to those. Almost, I almost, it's rare that I don't. Yeah, no, you're very good. And I, I guess you're just trying to show me up now because I'm not no, very good. No, I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's one of us is trying. You do sometimes. Oh, hold on one second. Anyway, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to decide what my, my, um, my position is on it you know, on comments on these kind of posts on whether it's something that you should invest a much a time in, because it's like, if you know that you're going to have to spend not only all the time that you do writing it, but then two, two or three times that amount of time responding to comments, I mean, you're not probably going to want to write anything. Well, I do think we should do some, um, this is kind of a bit of a tangent, just taking it in a bit of a different direction, but sort of related. I do think we should start thinking about, promotional blogs for any foo and how to get people there um to try and put out like a venus flytrap to get as many people as possible who would who think they would like to be experts and to basically contact us and apply to be experts and then we can kind of vet them i think uh blog posts would be quite a good way of doing that yeah well sure i I think that's the obvious approach i i think where we can start we talked a little bit of this about this yesterday yeah um and so i think we just we can recover just why don't we just we'll do our any foo segment now let me just sure. do it. So, but on that point specifically, um, I think the first stage is we'll just sort of get in touch with, I mean, we've had probably, a, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen people just email us directly and said that, they, that they're really interested in, in doing it. Just really go out of the way and, and people comment. So we probably have 10 or 15 people that we can just, that would be perfect for the beta test. They're people who, who, who have a lot of interest in it. They understand what we're trying to do. And the next step, I think, if we look in our sort of personal Rolodexes of the people we know and um, whatever, we could probably get another 20 to 30 people or, or quality experts sort of in that sort of technical startup ecosystem. And then after that, I think we probably should, could post things uh, I, on Google Plus. I mean, you know, I could probably post and say, hey, look, you know, we want some, you know, beta users. Here's some, if you're an expert in a library or this technology or this and this, you know check out, you know, we need, we need some people, you know, get in touch with us. We could probably pull in another, you know, 50 people, maybe with your Twitter account, maybe pull in a hundred. Yeah. Way. And, and then after that, and those people are going to be people who, because they follow us on Google plus or on Twitter, there's more relations and the, and the, and the podcast as well. Right. We'll just ask people to say, we'll do it right now. Right. If, if you're, if, if you are interested in being an expert on any foo, you have an expertise. It doesn't have to be like you know everything about everything about like some ecosystem, but you just know some framework really well, right? Yeah. You know some library real well. Say, I am an absolute expert in this. I know this database really well, or I know, I don't know, SEO, how to do SEO on this thing, or I know how to analyze a certain type of market really well. I mean, something that's sort of a, a fairly well-defined um, area 
it's a little bit deeper than that. You need some kind of proof. You know, you need some kind of visible proof that you know it really well. So, such as, I don't know, well, we writing call, a blog post about it or, or writing a book about it or, you know. We call them like highlights. Those are highlights. Yeah. Highlights, signposts, footprints, whatever you want to call them. But things that say can really be demonstrated to, to the people come on the site and say, you know, I need someone who's an expert on um, Google App Engine. You know, I mean, what have you done? Did you write a book? Did you speak at a conference? Did you teach a class on it? Did you, did you uh, actually code a bunch of projects for some clients? I mean, did you write up a series of tutorials? Those are all things that people can go and go, okay, I can tell this person knows I've done because they've done X, Y, and Z. If you just say, oh, well, I, I worked on some personal projects. I didn't write anything about it. I have nothing in public that you can see, but I'm claiming I'm an expert. I mean, that's, that's hard for us to vet. And what we don't want to do is take a risk and have people on the site who claim to be experts and can't aren't they can't they don't sell themselves very well on the site right they don't right. convince anybody um because if you if, if you're if you wrote a book on the subject that's pretty much guaranteed that you know what you're talking about there's always a, a special case doesn't mean if you didn't write a book you don't but that's an example of something but the yeah. other case is that what we really don't want to happen not the, the second worst case is we have a bunch of people on there who don't impress anyone and so no transactions occur right they're not, no, no one's convinced that these experts really know what they're talking about. The next worst thing is people still hire them and they don't actually know what they're experts and people get really disappointed and frustrated with that. Yeah, so we need to do a careful job of vetting. Now, how, how do people uh, make us aware of this at this point in time? So, I, I mean, right now, you can, I mean, you can comment on the website, comment on, our blog, on the podcast blog or send a, send, just send an email to... Um, I think the best thing would be to send an email podcast at textinglive.com at this stage and then we'll just flag them in our inbox. Podcasttexting.com, yeah. Because yeah, we're, we're going to get around to this in probably, I guess, two or three weeks as we, as we push this out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just say... And, and I, what we don't want people is anyone to take it personally if we don't put you on right away because what we're going to do is we're going to lean towards the people who have the most impressive credentials yeah. Um, because that is going to sort of set a certain type of standard. I mean, the other people, you may know more than the people who have the credentials, but we need people who just, you know. It's just obvious. It's just obvious. It's like PhD, a professor and machine learning at, a full professor of machine learning at MIT. Okay. I mean, it's done, right? The guy's an expert in machine learning. You know, it may turn out that. PhD you, in Node.js. Yeah. I mean, you may have done <laughs> a master's degree and done more work than this person or, you know, just as much, but. You know, it, um, you, you just, I am express. It's all about marketing, stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right. So yeah, that's what we'll do. And then, and then we'll, and then I have, I, and I'm sure we'll come up with a few, but I have, um, I have like four or five ideas I've written down for blog posts that I think could, um, do well on Hacker News that will really play into a discussion about what IndieFoo is going to be doing. I have some okay, books. Cool that I think can, and with that, and that'll be the third or fourth stage when we go from having a hundred or 200 experts to having, you know, 500 or a thousand. So uh, would, is there any chance you could give maybe a minute roundup on where we're at, what state we're at with the project? Um, basically I've just done a lot of, um, the, uh, getting accounts set up, getting the payment stuff set up. I mean, Getting our account with uh, Webmaster Checks has been kind of painful because it's just been so much paperwork and so many phone calls and emails and faxing and emailing. It's just been like, <laughs> you know, an exercise and frustration that it takes so much to get stuff like that set up. But um, that stuff is, is well on its way. So, How about from a dev point of view? Like, what, where, where do you feel it's at from that point of view? Um, I think we're probably... 
I think a lot of it is pretty is is there. I think we need to um wait it what, what areas of functionality do you do you do you have done? Well, you can um well, the one thing we don't have is just the search, <laughs> like the browsing. So I, I need right. that's not a big deal just cuz I didn't create a bunch of profiles yet. We need to create yeah. fake profiles so you can search or browse. But once you're looking at a profile, you can, you know, set up a uh, session and goes through all the back and forth with the scheduler component you built and proving the invoice and paying and all that happens. And then you can go in as an expert and go into your um, profile and set up your preferences and your uh, create your sort of the uh, your the list, all of your expertise and your highlights and move that stuff around. And that stuff works really well. Cool. And, and is it actually integrated into the payment processes so people can pay the whole end-to-end journey? Yeah, the Stripe, the Stripe stuff is, pay, is integrated. Now what we need to do, um, or what I guess I'll, I'm going to be doing is, um, we need to run like a cron job of some kind that um, is going to integrate with Stripe and is going to pull and find out when a transfer has happened. So once a payment, once someone makes a payment on Stripe, it goes into the Stripe account, and then seven days later it gets moved into our bank account. Yeah. And once we know that's happened, then we can make a transfer of that payment to the Webmaster Checks account of ours. And then we make a, an API call to say, you know, make this payment. And Ooh. based on how the expert has set up their payment preference, whether it's ACH, check, PayPal, wire, whatever, that's how the payment will, will happen. Nice. So, yeah, the, 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 the only uncertainty there was like, when are we going to know um, when that transfer has happened? And I was on a campfire chat with some of their support people asking them about how we can find that out. And they have some stuff in beta, some uh, stuff that isn't documented that we could probably use to help us. Oh, great. Great. So it's not, it's not, so we will actually be able to genuinely tell when the money's hit our account. Yeah. But one thing I just realized is, so just because the transfer has happened, that doesn't mean you hit her bank account. I wonder how long doesn't mean we can necessarily move it out of the account, right? I wonder whether, yeah, it, it, to be honest, it's actually, a, it's a bit of a difficult problem. I mean, I think the best thing to do is to say, right, we know that Stripe moves money once every, is it every Friday or something? Is that how it works? Was it seven days after it's captured? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, no, it's, which it's, have, no, it's not every, it doesn't have anything to do with every it's Friday. It's just every seven days after the payment occurs. Does that include um, weekends? Um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't say anything about that. You said seven days. Right. Because if, oh. if it's, if the payments captured on, for example, a Saturday, mm-hmm. they then, they then move it on a Saturday, but it probably won't end up in the bank account on the Saturday. Wouldn't it take? Yeah. And, and, probably uh, need to ask them for some clarification yeah. on that. And, um, right. And then if it's in our bank account, I don't know if that means it's available in our bank account. So what we might want to do is we just have to do like a, how much we'll, we'll probably need to keep a buffer in our bank account over time, build that buffer up. Yeah. So that we don't have to be, the money doesn't necessarily have to be in as long as we think, okay, it, it should be in by now and we'll make the payment and, you know, we'll yeah. take a little bit of risk there just to get that transaction completed. Cool. And I think that's pretty much, I think that's the segment. I don't really have too much else to say about it. Good. Well, it's good. Just keeping on, keeping listeners up to date on the AnyFoo project. So yeah, I know cool. it's, it's taken a lot longer than we expected. And a lot of it had to do with, um, I guess a lot of it has to do with just uh, other projects, you yeah. know, having, I mean, just consulting. It's just tough when you're uh, full-time consulting um, and then and trying to do this on the side and, you know, holidays and stuff, of course, slow things down a little bit. But um, I think overall it's just, uh, it just shows that 
launching something that's substantial and not just sort of like, you know, one of these sort of MVP, I worked on it for a week and released it kind of things. I mean, if you're doing something as substantial, it's, it's just, it takes a little time if you're going to be doing it on the side. Yeah. Just know we run, especially since we had to, you know, we did it together and we had to create an LLC and, you know, bank. We, we wasn't like we just hook up a PayPal account and we're good. Mm-hmm. Had a lot, we had a lot more stuff that had to be done. Um, a lot of thinking to do about it as well. Yeah. We had a thing. Yeah, and I think, and as we stated earlier, I mean, a big delay, which we've, we've learned that lesson is, is we, we try to do design. We started, we tried to get a lot of design work done early off of mockups, which was, and then that was moving so slowly that it just kind of got us in this sort of pace of moving in first gear. And that probably ate up six weeks to two months of time that we, we could have, you know, could have been doing something else. We're going to move faster, but well, we, did, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves because we, we are going to get it released and it is going to be released before 2013. So that is the... the, the <laughs> You're confident <laughs> that. Yes. I'm very confident it's going to be released before this time next year. Very confident. Yeah. So, you know, we, whatever happens, we're going we're gonna to be in the marketplace. So what do you think about, you know, speaking of hard, giving, uh, being hard on ourselves, um, I guess Ben Boyder and I can't remember one or two other at least one other person said that I, they thought I was, I was, I was riding you a little hard. That would be a little uh, hard. Being, well, it's funny. I mean, if, if people kind of knew me, they may do the same thing. <laughs> I'm a bit of a frustrating person. Maybe not necessarily on the show. I know that some listeners would think that I am. Um, but uh, I mean, <laughs> I think in, in some ways, yes, a little bit too much. But I mean, I'm also probably a bit pernickety with you sometimes as well. Um, but I think it's good, you know, the main point you made, which was correct to Ben Boyter, you're saying, look, I'm only, I'm only hassling Justin about his health, you know, and I'd say that to any friend and I think it's fair enough. And, you know, you are a kind of wear your heart and your sleeve kind of person, but, uh, I prefer it if you don't do it on the show, I think. <laughs> no, I, the, the, the accountability sessions will be offline. I'll give you yeah. time afterwards. But yeah. Be, yeah. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll, um, I'll try and be a little more sensitive to that. I, I don't, I didn't mean to make you feel uncomfortable or make any of our listeners feel uncomfortable. I was just sort of like, you know, trying to play the part of like your, you know, you, if you go to the gym and your personal trainer's there with you and not yeah. had one, but you know, this is kind of how it works. It's like, you know, you kind of quit, you know, two, you could have done two more lifts and they're like, what are you doing? You want to, you want to get stronger or what? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, do it. Get going. Push it. And you're like, all right. right. You know, that's that's you know, or if like, oh, so what'd you eat? You say, oh, I had donuts, and the guys gonna be like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing? They're gonna ride you, you know, because yeah, that you know, and and maybe I maybe I pushed a little too hard on that. So I, I, again, it was only because I was trying to help you and just sort of like uh, you know try and get you to do what you wanted to do. But um, I will keep that to a minimum, and I'll you know we'll keep it off the show. Thank you very much. That's much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> the kinder, gentler Jason of 2012. Yeah. Not the lighter Jason. It's the darker Jason. The darker, kinder, gentler. No, no. I, I'm going to be the, the 2012 is going to be the, this, the year of sensitivity. Okay. <laughs> I'll see what happens. Sensitive. Be very sensitive. <laughs> your needs. So uh, I have a couple of little things I want to bring up. Uh, so are we still going to do the dumbest idea in the world, maximizing shareholder value? Yeah, we'll do that in just one sec. I just want to do a couple of tiny ones real quick. Okay. I, so... Okay, so I can go probably another 20 minutes. Okay, I figured, I figured that's about right. So um, a couple of ideas I had. You know, I was talking with, um, you hear this all the time. I was talking with Guyon about this, um, who's my friend of mine I'm working on App Ignite with for the last 25 years. How long have we been working mm-hmm. on App Ignite for? A Three, long time. Six years. Something like that. So um, 
you know, he's talking about buying a house, and he's like, well, you know, it's you know, it's better to, financially to buy a house because you know, you you know, tax deductible, this and that, and you know, he's in Norway, so I mean, I, I may assume their taxes work along similar lines. You know, well, of course, James Altucher saying it's better to rent a house, but yeah. So what I was like, I kept saying, you know, it's kind. You know, what you should do is create a spreadsheet and you know, really run the numbers. Like, what is what's been the appreciation of a home over the, on average appreciation over the last thirty years? Use that as appreciation over time. What's going to be your brokerage fees, buying and selling it, coming in and out? What are going to be your maintenance costs, your likely maintenance costs? What are going to be your property taxes? How much are you going to get from, you know, writing off, you know, the, the write-offs that you get, the, the tax, the things that help your, work in your advantage tax-wise? Because I feel like, I think a lot of times what happens is people don't factor in all those things. Like, oh, well, you know, you're... Your mortgage, your interest payments, or whatever they are, they're tax deductible. It's like, well, now you have right, your property taxes, now, right? And you, you pay three percent, you know, buying and selling a house and all that. But there's a there's a certain thing that's kind of overlooked in this discussion, which is the basic feeling of owning a place. Um, like for example, for Georgie, that's just a massive deal, right? So the idea of her renting for the rest of her life would be very depressing for her. So at some stage you need to make, you know, when you're with people like that, you need to make the jump from renting to actually buying, even if it isn't as financially uh, sensible. Well, that's exactly what Guyon said to me. And I said, well, then you should have said, I want to buy a house because I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to, I, I like the feeling of owning a house. I mean, it's like, y- y- if you say, I want to buy a house because it's a financial advantage, then let's talk about the funny, then I'm talking about the financials. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you can bring the emotion in. It, well, he probably doesn't even mean that it's also it's also to be able to do what you want with it, right? So it's two things. It's like the feeling of owning it and you know, if I if you want to knock out a wall, you can knock out a wall because it's yours. Yeah. Well that's true. See, what I think this is the classic case where and, and I'm not picking on Guyon, I think Guyon is is simply stating on what you hear from everybody, pretty much, which is that your emotions, the emotions of buying a home, it's the feeling of having a place of your own, of having the freedom to do whatever you want with it, you know, whatever it is, right? And there's a lot of different things that go into buying a home um, that go into making people want to buy a home. But people always use the rationale that it's a fun, it's an investment, and there are, and it's better tax wise, right? Well, okay, yeah. I'm I'm saying, well, let's let's compare apples to apples here. Okay, let's get a hard the whole emotional argument and say, is it a financial advantage or a financial negative? Um, if it's a financial negative, then you, you shouldn't say, well, I'm buying it for the financial reasons. You say, I'm buying it because we want to have a home of our own, even if it is a financial liability, right? It's funny that you're, you've brought this up because um, this is uh, very relevant to something that we're doing right now, that we're thinking about, we started thinking about. So, you know, I've told you that I'm interested in moving to Savannah and you, say it'll, you said it'll never happen. That's okay. I think it will. Um, but and if recent, it does, you'll be back. I think you'll be moving back. I'm very close to selling my house in England. Yeah. And the reason when we move to Savannah, we'll, we're going to be renting for a year to see whether we really like it or not. Yeah. Okay. Now, this house sale in England is going to give me, you know, a substantial chunk of cash that could be used as a down payment on a new house. Oh, so if you burn in a hole in your pocket, you have a loaded so, gun and you just can't wait to fire it. Right, but so what I've been thinking is, right, this is, this is my plan, the idea I've come up with. If I'm going to stay in Savannah and rent for a year, wouldn't it make sense to actually buy a low-end house? So to, to research the market, find the houses that shift really fast, and I'm guessing those houses are from the, the 100,000 to the 200,000 range, and 
when I actually look, that kind of bears true. When I look at the sites, all the houses in that range do seem to be selling. So find a house that is basically um, in a little bit of disrepair on the low end scale. Uh, maybe buy it for something like 100 or 150 or something like that. Work on it dur- and live in it during a year. And then at the end of the year, bring it up to the spec of the other 200,000 houses and then sell it and make 50 grand. Make it sound so easy. <laughs> really? I almost want to go do it myself. But I mean, does, it just seems to make sense, right? No. Okay. Here, here's why I think it. I mean, <laughs> it makes sense if you frame it that way. Okay. Then, that's like the first part of like, you know, they, we talk about how you, who, these shows like Cold Case File where they spend the first half making the case of why this guy is guilty of murder. And then you find yeah. you the second half and you realize you totally wasn't guilty of anything, you know? Right. Okay. So here's the other side of it. One, you're not going to do any of the work yourself, right? You're not a handy guy. You're not going to be, re, you know, putting in a new kitchen. You're not. Gonna well, I wouldn't get something that was that far away. So, so what, what I would get is something that was staged really badly. So it that was basically structurally sound, but staged badly. Something that just where the people had a really bad sense of decor and had done it really badly. Then the only real work that you had to do was to basically rip, rip off all the wallpaper, um, put in, you know, I don't know, new toilets and new sinks and just kind of minimal structural work, but just do it up really well and stage it well, because staging in its own right can make people really fall in love with the property and buy it. As yeah, is proven no, from no. the last house that we were in, that because Georgie had done it up so well, this was a rental house, the people who were unable to sell it before sold it in a snap just because Georgie had done it up so beautifully. Well, it's hard to necessarily say if that's the only reason, right? It could have been the, the um, you know, timing in the market when you sold versus, I mean, because when you right. went in there, what's 2008? And when you came out, it was 2010, 2011? Yeah. Well, it was the, certainly the people who were coming around the house definitely gave the impression that 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 was one of the reasons that they loved yeah, it so much. I just think that there are other factors in there that you'd have right. to, you're not comparing, it's not a fair comparison. I'm not saying that she didn't do a nice job I, I, or anything like that. I'm just saying you got to make sure that that's not the only yeah. variable. Okay, you know, if, like my brother and his wife have bought about four or five houses, fixed them, a couple of them they lived in, a couple of them they, they was when they, it was like a house near where they lived. They bought them cheap, they fixed them up and they sold and made profit on them. Or they rented them out for a while and they made a profit. But that's because my brother could build a house himself. He had a construct. He 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 actually had built houses from scratch. Yeah. So he can do everything. He's an engineer. I mean, he is amazing. So someone like my brother who could just say he's going to take a weekend or a week and he'll just, you know, put in a new bathroom or something like that's fine. Me, I don't know how to do that stuff. Not only that, I don't want to do that stuff. I don't want to live in that kind of environment. I don't want to deal with that kind of crap. It's not my expertise. It's not. My comfort zone, it's just a big distraction to pain in the butt. And like when we remodeled our condo, um, I mean, it was just, it was just living in a construction zone. It was, it was way more expensive than, you know, even after you did all the research and roll the numbers down, it was still make it 50% more expensive than that. So you did some major remodeling, right? Yeah. So I'm just saying, so if it comes down to remodeling, I'm just saying, in, if unless it's something you just love doing, and I don't mean because you wrote, you, you watched a few dozen episodes of, of, uh, house hunters or something and our HGTV. And now you like, like the idea of fixing up a house. I mean, like you really know you like doing it, then do it. But if you think, okay, I don't, you don't want to fix it up. You just want to like buy a house. They have crappy furniture and crappy wallpaper and do that. Yeah. Set up. But then I feel like you're not really adding much value. You're just, you're, it's kind of your arbitraging and it's almost like, well, I'm just going to go buy some stocks that are underpriced and then sell them. Well, it, no, it's that, like that, it's that, easier that, said than done. Well, that is what, I, what I'm kind of thinking. And I, th- I think it is possible. I mean, maybe I'm just being naive, but, but let's put it this way. 
to to go to move to Savannah, right, and to to rent is going to cost a minimum of fifteen. Like to get anything remotely nice is going to cost a minimum of fifteen hundred a month. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a lost a lost cost at the end of the year. It's going to be twelve. 13, 14, 15, say 15, 15 and a half thousand lost, right? Versus buying and um, ending up with a more like your actual payment of say 500 to 600 a month for a year. Well, first you're going to flip this thing. You're trying to flip this thing in like a year or two. Yeah. So then it's, then it's, uh, you have to pay capital gains. Uh, you have to pay like much higher tax rate on that because you sort of sold it within three years. Oh, is, is that, oh, is that the case? I'm pretty sure I'm not an expert on this, but I'm pretty sure that if you buy and sell something, capital gains. there's a big capital gains or something when you on that profit. Why so would they do that? that? Well, because it's 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 a it's not just selling your home; it's your actually it's a business. It's a business profit kind of a thing, right? People do that as a as a money making enterprise. It's not just you know. Yeah, you, but you don't pay capital gains when you write a piece of software, and that's a money making enterprise. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I you know, like I said, I've. I'm, uh, this isn't my area of expertise, and even close to my area of expertise. But um, I, I just think that you know the amount of money that you're going to lose in the friction of buying the house, the paying the broker's fees, paying the all the fees that go to um, going through the escrow and the you know the processing crap. And I mean, it's just a lot of headache, man. I mean, it's really distracting. I mean, it's like, do you want to focus on Anyfu and Plugio? Or do you want to go and spend time thinking about your house? No, I want to focus on any firm plug here, and I want Georgie to spend time thinking about the house. Yeah, because that's exactly how it's going to work, right? She's going to do all the work, and you're not going to do it. And then, yeah, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> if she's thinking about it, you're thinking about it, right? <laughs> you know that's true, right? Well, I'm interested to know what all the fee... I mean, obviously, I don't have the full facts, right? So this is just a kind of budding idea in my mind. But and second, um, of all, you, second of all, you're going into a market that you don't know. You've never lived there. You're just going to go in there and then like hang out for in a hotel for a few weeks and buy a place. Well, not for a few weeks. For obviously, for a few months, I'd get a, a like a, a a rental, like a month to month rental. And obviously, I I would talk to real estate people and talk to other people who'd done it in the area, and see because I I do I mean I have had experience of buying very low low end houses and selling them, and it, it isn't it in in um I've done it once but i've had experience yeah i thought you were i thought they were stretching that a little bit so you bought you bought a house and you're trying to sell it now no 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 that that, that was my second i've 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 specifically bought a low value house and then sold it because the thing the thing about the low-end houses is that there's a lot of liquidity in that at very low-end houses i don't know whether you realize this but like when a house is kind of in the hundred thousand range they 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 sell pretty First, Why do you want to house like that? Well, ma- mainly because, well, first of all, in Savannah, a, a house in that price range is pretty nice, right? It's not as it's not as bad as Los Angeles, you know. So that's the well, you other could point. Buy a parking spot for hundred thousand, and no, exactly. Yeah. And well, unless you want to live in some crap hole, but I don't know, man. I, you know, if 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 you were going to go and you wanted to buy and fix up a house, and you're like, we're going to move to Savannah, rent for a year, really get to know the area, decide if we want to live there, and we're going to buy a house that we really like, and we're going to like live there for probably a minimum of five years and fix it up and then sell it and make money. Up. Okay, that's, I, I could say that's probably reasonable, but going there, buying a low-end house after not knowing the area, doing it in you know, a couple months, you know, cleaning it up, it sounds like a big distraction, well, a lot of risk, and... I've already done this once, and I didn't even ever step foot in the house. I did the entire thing across the internet. Yeah, well, you might have just been lucky. 
Don't <laughs> keep skill with luck. <laughs> I've done that myself many times. <laughs> I'm awesome. Yeah. Woo! You know, the time that like you wrote a paper, like a 10 page paper in three hours and got an A on it. And then you think you can do it every time and you keep trying to repeat it. And it just never happens that way again. You're like, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe I should actually start writing the paper before the night before, you know? Right. I don't know. So let's move on. We don't want to. Sure, sure. So, um, I'm going to ask you a question. Here's one of my questions for you. What are your must-have apps on your iPhone? Because um, I don't use any of my apps. I don't have like I have um, I have some apps that I, I and I did some posts on Google Plus about about using um, uh, using your iPhone for filmmaking. You know, because the iPhone has a 1080p uh, HD film uh, camera in it, video camera in it, and there's some really cool. Um, effects software, editing software, and then, uh, and filming software that you can use that are like a dollar, two dollars. You could, you can, you could really shoot some amazing stuff and actually cut the whole thing, do sound editing, everything on your iPhone. Although I probably wouldn't do it. I'd probably edit it using iMovie, but which is already comes pre-installed on your Mac. But, um, aside from that, aside from taking pictures and checking my email and making phone calls, I don't use my iPhone for anything else. So I want to find out what's the Okay, so I'll try and list, list them in some sort of order of uh, importance. My number one absolutely most important must-have app on my iPhone is a torch. It's the light. Uh-huh. Yeah, light. So basically it's an app that allows the flash to just be a torch. Uh-huh. And I basically use that all the time. Um, like when? Then, You're reading at night or something? Yeah, pretty, pretty much every night just so that, you know, so I don't wake up Georgie if I'm kind of moving around or whatever. Um you know, going to the kitchen to get That's a like midnight snack. Crap. That's my what? That's your MacGyver. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So then um, I use the calculator all the time. Um, use the clock and the alarm and the, the, the different time zone stuff. I use that all the time. All right. Um, I've used Chase and Wells Fargo to check on how much money I'm making all the time. <laughs> or, <laughs> or not. <laughs> I use the mail, the, the built-in mail app all the time. Love that. And I have Google News. Um, uh, basically, you know how when you go to a website and you can save that onto the home screen, I have Google News set up there. So I, I'm always looking at Google News and um, I never really look at Twitter or any, any social media stuff on the iPhone okay. and my iPod and obviously the phone. That's basically yeah, it. The, the, the phone and listening to a podcast and music. I, I guess I use, I guess what I should say is I use Safari all the time just to look at Hacker News and different stuff, you know. So, but beyond like the built-in utilities, like the phone, the email, the clock, calorie, I mean, stuff. Are there any app? I mean, the torch, it sounds like apps that you wouldn't know about. It's the just torch. the torch. It's just the, to- the cho- it's just the torch and um, Chase and Wells Fargo, really. This is, so it doesn't sound like you use it for much. You're not, you're not an app power user. Oh, there is one other one that I find very useful, um, Navigon, which basically turns it into a GPS, like a really good. That is what I've been wanting. I've been really good GPS. ask you about that. When you showed that to me the first time, we were driving back from MicroConf and we got lost on the. We, we took the wrong exit. Yeah. We got on the highway. Or, or we're trying to. Oh, you know what we're trying to do? We we're trying to beat the traffic. The traffic jam. And I was like, let's go and get on a later exit or something. Yeah. And you like, well, let me. I got this cool app. And you show me this like 3D, you know, um, GPS system. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I was like, now that is worth getting an iPhone for alone. It really is good. But it costs about 50 bucks, if I remember correctly. Holy like it, 50 bucks? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a proper investment. But that's because it is yeah. like hardcore, you know, like it is like the it's better than any 
GPS system that I've seen. Like, it's just so good, you know? $50. Man, I thought you were going to tell me, like, it was, like, 10 That is well, incredibly expensive for an app. Well, it's funny, but that you only think that way because they're commoditized. But if you compare it then to a, to buying a full GPS, you go, oh, it's actually really cheap. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all that, that cognitive bias anchoring, right? Mm-hmm. We're all anchored to think in terms of, like, one, two, maybe at a high end, like a $5 app. Yeah. So, I mean... I don't know. I may, yeah, I may even, it may even be more than that. Let me just have a look in there. My the God. That is amazingly expensive. So would you buy that? Is that too much? No, I don't think I'd pay that much. I thought it was cool. I was like, you know, I'd pay like five bucks for it, but I don't have a, I don't have a need for it. That's hilarious. So there are things you that think I need. that value is only worth. Well, because I don't really need it. Yep, 50 bucks. Yeah, I don't need it. I mean, I want it. I think it would be neat to have. I think it'd be cool. Oh, you can buy it for 30, for 30 bucks if you just get one part of America. Yeah, see, I just don't, I don't, I don't really have a need for it. I just thought it'd be cool on random occasions to whip that out and check it out. But, you know, I don't really, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't, not $50 worth $50 for me. Mm. No way. Well, obviously, when I was just learning to drive, I certainly needed it, <laughs> given that I didn't know my way around anyway. Right, so so that's, very that's fair yeah. enough. So I have a correction I need to make. Go on. Um, so Dan uh, DeFilippe, De is that how you pronounce his last name? Oh, yeah. Um, so he made a comment. You know, we made a story a couple weeks ago about um, organic foods. There was a study that was done claiming that organic foods were more cost-efficient and uh, m- there were higher yield and more forgiving to the land and all these kinds of things. That it basically was like a win-win-win-win in every case over conventional methods. Yeah. And um, I, didn't have a t- I didn't have time to go back and check again. But one thing Dan pointed out, he said, listen – the study you're referring to was written up by the Rodale Institution, which is heavily biased towards organic farming. I mean, that's something they're promoting. He's like, so the study, you might want to like take that with a grain of salt or do more research into it. So, um, which I made me feel kind of bad because usually I try and check my sources. And this yeah. is cases where I just kind of read the article and the site didn't look like it was obviously like uh, some kind of somebody's you know random blog. It looked like it was somewhat legit um but uh that's the thing it just reminds you you got to you always check your sources you know like where are you getting this information from are you getting it from um you know the atlantic monthly or new york times you're getting it from you know joe's <laughs> you know joe's farming.com or something so so did you find out that that was incorrect i don't know i don't know if it's incorrect i, I honestly didn't have time to uh, i had it on my list of things to check because you said you had a correction to make yeah but i'm just saying i, I it may just say that i have a correction to say that i'm not sure that 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 what i cited it was correct in that article so um it's just saying that dan was dan was raising the alarm to say that may be suspect those numbers right and uh I, so i would put that and say you know don't don't take that for granted all. no i think that you know Organic farming has, I, I know that it's like when you, when you grow a lot of different types of um, plants and stuff, as opposed to like when you grow only one kind over huge amounts of land, it like is usually better for the, better for the soil. And there's all these kinds of things that you can do. Where that stuff ends up being more expensive or you get higher yield or lower yield. I mean, I don't know those things for sure, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, so I don't know. I just, I just wanted to make that little correction. Um, cool. So let's see. I had a couple other small things. I'm gonna have to uh, wrap up pretty soon. All righty. Um, well, we've been recording. Let, t- we've got two hours of recording time down. 
Okay. Yeah. No. Um, speaking of the dark side. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, you know, it would be cool. I, I, I don't know where this was. People were talking. It was some company that people were talking about evil. Like maybe it was like Monsanto or something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, it'd be cool as if you had like a competition for like the world's most evil company. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> what kind of competition? Like a competition that's judged or actually you, you, you encourage would, the companies to be evil? So, you know, no, what you would do is you'd have teams that was right. okay. We'll represent Goldman. We're going to say Goldman's the most evil or Halliburton or yeah. Mobile or Blackwater or, or Monsanto. Like which one has done the most damage? Which one has done the most nefarious, destructive things for its own interest? Um, and what would be cool is if you had like teams of three or five people and they would each take, you know, one of them and they would research and say, here are all the stories we found in the last 10 or 15 years of all the things they've done that are just (laughs) sickening and then have like a competition and then have them all judged. And then they could write up like, you know, up to 500 or a thousand word essay. Like they did this, 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 you know, (laughs) and you could kind of write it kind of funny. Like you ever used a seen the uh, website cracked? Uh, Yeah, I have. Yeah. It's kind of says they usually say it with sort of a you know it's, it's, it's things are really funny. It's like you could do it in kind of a funny way, like and they could respond to the other ones. Like you you could you could write up like a thousand words about your company about why it's so evil, and then you could have up to you know a hundred words or two hundred words to each of the other companies. Say you know what I yeah I get why you think it sounds like it could be a segment on the Daily Show. It would be funny. I think it would be really funny, but it would also bring out like some truth about some of this stuff that's pretty evil. But so you could defend Temple Warriors evil, but you could also diminish say, look, you know, I know why they think Blackwater is evil because of, you know, this and that, but that's nothing in comparison to what our company has done <laughs> in terms of freaking destruction. That sounds funny. Yeah. Anyway, that's the little idea I had. Um, so that is a light note. Now, Georgie's just come in and said that, um, the family here is waiting for me to finish the show so that we can all go out to dinner. Okay. I'll do one more small thing. Okay, go on. <laughs> Cause I have about five, I have about five or eight things. Two more tiny, ones. just two. There was, remember I was talking about, wish there was a site where people, you could read like, like a three to five paragraph, maybe a three paragraph summary of, of a webpage. Oh yeah. The- like, you, like I wish that I could just like the way I use, um, um, Instapaper where I just say read later. I have it on my toolbar or whatever and I'd say read later and I have like 10 or 15 posts at the end of the day that I'll print out and read. Yeah. It would be nice if you did that and then when you go into something like Instapaper you could either print out the full article or could print out some other site that has the summary that someone has written like this is this is the you know this fully abridged version of it. Right. And I know I brought this up a number of times over the last couple of years because where, where they did this was when I was in the Cayman Islands back, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And they, they didn't deliver a full Wall Street Journal, New York Times or whatever it was. They would give like a four pages faxed of the, high, of the headline, of the top stories. And that was it. So you'd read the whole thing in like an hour. Like, but- well, I mean, it sounds like the kind of service that probably is a paid for service, like a subscription service um, that journalists subscribe to, you know, so that they can get up to date on those kind of facts. Yeah. So there's some company called, some little startup called, or a little site called Gistu, G-I-S-T-O. Yeah. And they're doing, they're trying to do something like that, but they were talking, but I'm not sure exactly how they're getting the, the, this, the sites. Cause I don't, I don't think they've done much. And it was just like, um, I mean, I don't know. You'd have to really crowdsource it. I think, I think that's what you'd have to do. Wait, but speaking of crowdsourcing, here's the last little thing I wanted to bring up was that, um, you know, um, 
you, you'll see these things pop up on Hacker News occasionally or, or Reddit or something where people say, everybody's got to write their congressman about SOPA or, everybody, or the NDAA. Or everybody's got to, you know, you got to write it. You got to make a phone call. You got to do this. You got to do that. You know what would be, but it's so ad hoc and messy and it's hard to keep track of. Like, it's, you know, it's kind of like, well, so I wrote a letter, you know, or I did that do anything. What would be really cool is if you could have like an effort, like you could say, okay, here is the anti-SOPA effort, kind of like a Kickstarter or something, you have a project or something, and you could join up and be a supporter of it, and you get points for everything you do, whether you call your congressperson or whether you write a letter and then and, and to your congressman, you, give, you get a certain amount of points. You get- <laughs> nice. So ga- game theory for political hacking. Gamification for crowdsourcing political movements. Nice. So like you would say, look, I am, you know, like you, you have like, you know, your, you know, 10 or 20 issues that you really care a lot about. And we'll use SOPA as one of them because I, we probably are pretty, you know, most people listening are probably, probably mostly anti-SOPA at this point. So you could say anti-SOPA is one of my 10 that I care deeply about. And I have 25 points. I wrote a blog post about it that gave me 10 points. I, I wrote a letter and I took a picture of my iPhone and posted it up. So, so any other, anyone else could come out and give it a thumbs up so it's verified, right? If you- but what do you do when the pro-SOPA people use it just as effectively? Well... I, you know, I see. I think what 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 I think is happening is is what I'm less concerned about is whether um, the population at large, the citizenship, disagree on issues. What I think is problem is when the government has been co opted by massive special interest in corporate lobbying to where the government is no longer responsive to the people at all. I mean, we're in wars or we're passing laws or these detention, indefinite detention, detention things or the surveillance state stuff. I mean, none of that stuff is what anyone wants. Right, yeah. government is not responsive. They're doing that for reasons that have nothing to do. You say, like, what? What percentage of people want to us to be in Afghanistan? I can guarantee you, it's a very small percentage. It's not a majority, yeah. even close. Um, and so, what really this kind of a thing could help organize and really amplify the ability to get a lot of people behind something and actually feel like, you know, that gamification really helps you feel psychologically motivated. It's like, you, if you see, if you just because of Hacker News, someone says, oh, well, you got to totally write your uh, Congress person and then you have the people say, oh, it's totally useless. Don't worry about doing that. And, you know, you just kind of feel like, I don't know, it's worth the time. But if you're getting points and it's part of some public profile and you're like, these are my 10 issues that I really care about and I have 47 points for this and I have 120 points for this and, you know, and you get points because you write a blog post that goes viral or you get a Facebook with so many lights or you make a video on YouTube that gets 4,000 views, you know, all those kind of things, right? I like it. I like it. And you could have, that your revenue model could be that different political parties could kind of put adverts on the site to try and get more people to do gamification for their courses. <laughs> Ugh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I would kind of like, I, I think it would be less about a money-making thing. It would be more like a non-for-profit to helping sort of, sort of, you know, citizen political involvement, engagement. Well, I do like it. And I think, like, like I said in the last episode, you know, once, once we get some steam behind us with uh, our projects, Anifu and Plugio, that this, maybe this, this is the kind of way that we can get involved you know, yeah, this is the kind of thing you can do to like really amplify your 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 um, your effect on the world. You know, try and try and make the world better. You know, try yeah. and improve things. And uh, I don't know. Well, anyway, just, we have a lot of ideas. We, we we'll save the other one. The uh, the what was the article? I've got the dumbest idea in the world: maximizing shareholder value. Do that, and we'll save that for next week. 
Sure. Because that's a big one. We have a lot of ideas and Texting definitely has the ambition of making the world a better place. And um, yeah. I think uh, this has been a fantastic show. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Nice long show for 2012. Kind of made up for no show last week. Yeah. And no, apologies people, about that. This will take people a couple weeks to get through. <laughs> so, all right. Well, good to have you back, man. Good to be here. So, all right. Well, I will uh, I'll catch you later. Okay. That's a wrap. We're out. Yeah.